Another great episode of Red Sea Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you hear, please go to our website, redsearadio.org, and donate to our apostolate, or even become a member of our Immaculata Recurring Gift Society and keep us on the air. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Good morning. This is your host, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. Pleasure to have you in here this morning on Red Sea Roundup on Red Sea Catholic Radio. Perhaps you're listening to Red Sea Catholic Radio this morning on KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley or KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, KINF 107.9 FM out in the Holy Land of Palestine. You might also be listening through RedSeaRadio.org online or on our iPhone or Google Play Android app. You can always call in to be a part of our conversations this morning at 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. It's a rainy morning here in Bryan College Station, and I'm sure across our listening area, but we're going to have a really sunny topic to talk about today in the second half of the hour, the the great history of the Diocese of Austin, which is in the midst of its 75th anniversary celebration. I'm going to be joined by an author, Faith of Faith and Perseverance, the History of the Catholic Church in Central Texas, Carl Kirkendall, in the second part of the show to talk about his book covering the history of the especially the Diocese of Austin, but the, the antecedents to the Diocese of Austin and the, the presence of the Catholic Church in Central Texas. Also in the studio with me today, the intrepid Dennis Maka. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Thaddeus. Good morning. Yes, it is very cloudy and overcast, and uh, gosh, the rain last night worked havoc with the, uh, with the stations and, That's what you said. and my sleep. So if I'm a little groggy this morning, you know, so be it. I was also awake <laughs> we uh, offered in the up. middle of the night last night, too, but for a different reason. Kids? Yes. Daddy, I don't <laughs> like the lightning. Young, young Sebastian was, uh, was awake a little bit. Uh, Not as bad as the night before, but uh, nevertheless. Well, you know, it's, uh, there's very little room for the, the water to go right now after a, a wet and soggy week, an mm-hmm. icy week. And so um, I'm just very grateful that uh, all the electronics are working. We said a prayer that uh, they continue to work throughout the show. Yes, indeed. As we, as we are very happy to have the opportunity to broadcast to all of our listeners about mm-hmm. our beautiful Catholic faith and the goings-on in the, the listen areas of the Bryan College Station and Waco Lorena. Um, I thought maybe we could remind people that the famous spaghetti dinner mm-hmm. at St. Anthony's in Bryan is coming up. Dennis, you have uh, some words about that you can share? They are still uh, selling pre-order tickets, uh, contact the church uh, at St. Anthony's Catholic Church in Bryan to see if they have any reservations. I think last time I heard there's a actually a wait list to order uh, extra sauce and meatballs ahead of time. So the, the to-go orders of sauce and meatballs, I think there's a wait list to see if we can get enough made. So it's, it's already in high demand. Whoa. They're probably going to serve 3,300 people 
Wow. Uh, on site or to go orders. It's a big ordeal. Meatball and waiting list. Meatball and, and sauce. Yeah. Um, Kathy Court, our Red Sea Catholic Radio Administrative Coordinator, is the one in charge of that. So um, she's uh, been conspicuously absent this week for some reason. Hmm, but I wonder if that could be because there yeah. is so much preparation work there to do. Now, are you going to get over to do some sauce? Tomorrow morning. Yeah. You're going to make sauce tomorrow be, morning. Uh, stirring the suga as they call it. Um, Don't worry, folks. There's plenty of knowledgeable Italian-Americans to guide this Czech-American in the proper <laughs> uh, way of making the sauce. They've don't, taught don't me well. That. They've taught me well. So it's it's a great love of a labor of love that they put together. All the proceeds go for the St. Anthony's Altar Society, which mm-hmm. provides the the altar linens, the cleaning, this the care of the, the church itself um, throughout the year. So it's very... It, it, it's it, it, in my conversations with Kathy, I'm, I've come through the years to realize, you know, it really isn't about the money because the amount of work they put in to this, the amount of man hours, mm-hmm. it, it's certainly a labor of love. Um, and, and you probably, they could probably go out and get about six large scale donations and cover this with a lot easier, um, uh, easier on the time and, and effort. Easier on the joints. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the but it's the labor of love in the community of yeah. people coming together, and it's no different than say the the spaghetti dinners that they have or, or the hamburger dinners and and things that they have at uh, you know in Abbott that we've been talking about lately up mm-hmm. in uh, the northern part of the diocese. Um, each of them has their own flavor, but it's about people coming together right. and working together for a common purpose, and that I think that's. As equally important. Well, my children and wife got to be, oh yeah, you know, beneficiaries of that last week. They were up helping to make the the fig cookies mm-hmm. and the ring cookies. They loved doing that. Kathy invited them to come along and help. And one thing that my kids did point out, the kind of the older ones, they said it was it was interesting how you know how much kind of wasted dough there was that got got left off to the side and you know you'd have people setting aside the part that couldn't uh-huh. be used for the cookies and be bagged up to called dirty dough and they would just take that home there's was, there was a lot of that going on I think you guys got were the recipients of some of that when mm-hmm. when we were raising our family through uh, through the years at St. Anthony's we would be the the recipients of all the oh you have a large family here you take all the leftover cookies. Take, take all the like, all the dirty dough. Take all this sugar home for your kids. So it was great. We've been we've been feasting on that the last the last week. Yeah, it's great stuff. But so I do have the details today. Go ahead. I do have the details of the spaghetti dinner. Again, it is this Sunday, February twelfth, in the Malinowski Center uh, at St. Anthony's Catholic Church in Bryan. Meal tickets are fifteen dollars, and you have your to go orders from nine thirty a.m. to 2 p.m. and dine in from 10.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. They're not selling children's tickets this year. You can get the tickets at the church office or from any Altar Society member. All to-go meals will be made in the to-go containers. So they really invite everyone to come out. doesn't matter. You don't have to be. It's not restricted to parishioners of St. Anthony's. It's a, really a community event. It's quite a bit of, of pasta and sauce. And yes. um, Darby and I were laughing. We're like, oh, spaghetti dinner's coming up. 
last year we actually bought extra tickets and had a whole lot of extra. So we froze it and we could, it's good through mm-hmm. the year. Mm-hmm. We still have, I think one bag left from last year. We're like, we better eat that this week yeah. before the spaghetti dinner. So. Before you guys re-up. I know. Cause mm-hmm. we'll, we'll be having extras again. So it's yeah. great. Uh, there's a lot of other things going on. You wanted to mention some victory sports. Yep. We still have uh, victory sports, our Catholic youth sports initiative uh, launched by, and backed by Red Sea Catholic Radio and all of our our donors is uh, in the midst of basketball season, and we uh-huh. still have registration is open currently for soccer. Uh, soccer season is going to start at the end of March. Uh, go to victoryyouthsports.org to sign up mm-hmm. for soccer and be a part of the great things that are going on with Victory Sp- Youth Sports. You know, I had someone, a, a dear friend of mine, talking about what she's heard about Victory Sports. And hey, she hey, just let's, texted. let's hear it. She goes, I've heard it's amazing for many families, including some non-Catholic families. Yes. And then she also put, I also heard basketball was so good. One mom, one mom said she didn't expect the exercises and drills to be so well taught and that her kids actually learned something. Yes, that is always. <laughs> and, and we're not, I mean... We're we're singing the praises of Victory Sports, but we're also, you know, there are other leagues where they're a little bit squishy. Mm-hmm. They're not learning the skills. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. people like they get so set into the things that they're doing now, they're like, Well, I always I've always been involved with this sports league, but you know what? Kids are learning skills at sports and skills in virtue. Mm-hmm. And and people are raving about it. So that's awesome to hear. Thank cool. you so much for sharing oh, yeah. that, Dennis. That's awesome. Yeah, and speaking of um Growing in virtue, and you mentioned saint of the day. Well, the saint of the week, who we introduced last week to the kids in Victory Sports, is Saint Josephine Paquita, whose feast day it is today. Uh, and it's also a special feast day in my family uh, because my youngest daughter, uh, Josephine, three-year-old, it's her name day today. So she was up bright and early t- this morning talking about it's her name day, and she and knew what she wanted to pick talk. out. Yes. That girl <laughs> yes, can she talk. Can. And she knew what she wanted to pick out for her special breakfast meal, and she's going to—she has some ideas for what she wants for, for dinner. But her older brother, Andrew, the six-year-old, he got in there, and he said, well, I get to pick the lunch. I get to pick what we're going to have for lunch because, you know, I should get to pick something today too. So he's— he needs to grow in a little bit of virtue of generosity, I think. Um, but St. Josephine Bakita, she was a Sudanese saint. Uh, very timely to have her feast day today since the Holy Father just returned from his trip to Africa to the Democratic Republic of Congo and to South Sudan, um, her homeland. She uh, was from a noble family in Sudan, and she was abducted by Muslim slave traders and sold into slavery. And she was sold uh, several times until she uh, came into the possession of an Italian family and she was brought to Italy. And um, kind of very similarly to, there were some, there's some similarities to the famous Dred Scott decision in the United States. Um, She took her case all the way to the Italian Supreme Court, and it was ruled that since slavery was illegal in, in Italy, um, therefore she was no longer enslaved and she was given her freedom. 
Um, she was put into the under the care of the Kenosian Order of Sisters, and eventually, uh, 1890, she was baptized, confirmed, had her first communion, and then she became a sister and was um, was known for her kindness. She uh, took on menial roles a lot of time uh, in her time in that order, but she also did a lot to encourage people to go on mission to Africa to spread the gospel, and she helped um, raise money, uh, speak about the need for missionaries to Africa. And so she was very, she's very important to the continuing evangelization of Africa. And if anyone knows the the state of the church currently, that's where there is so much life and so much hope for the future in Africa. So many vocations coming out of, of Africa. Um, Africa has the most vocations of any one region in the universal church right now. So we're grateful to God for the witness and the the gratitude that St. Josephine Bakita showed. As a matter of fact, we have a quote from St. Josephine. I'm going to paraphrase it, but she was asked, what would she do if she ever met the men who enslaved her, captured her and enslaved her? And she said that she would get down on her knees and kiss their feet and give them give thanks to God because it was because of them and the suffering that she went through, the trials that she went through, that she was eventually able to know Christ and to be baptized mm. and to have life in Christ. If we all could only do the same. So what humility, what gratitude. And she she was the, the saint for our week of focus on the virtue of gratitude in victory sports. So it's really, really a neat um, providential thing here that, that all this came together. We got to talk about victory sports. We got to talk about St. Josephine Bikita. And with our last minute or so left in the first part of the show, again, stick around. We're going to talk to Carl Kirkendall about his book, Faith and Perseverance. It's a history of the Catholic Church in Central Texas, specifically the history of the Diocese of Austin, which is celebrating its 75th anniversary. I also want to tell you um, the last time I was on the air, I had Maria Sotolongo and uh, Becky Chalette, uh development officers from our two Catholic schools in our listening area, St. Joseph Catholic School and Bishop Lewis Riker. But St. Joseph Catholic School in Bryan, I can tell you, uh, ha- does have a couple of admission events coming up, and I wanted to mention those again. They have a virtual open house Tuesday, February 21st coming up, and then High School 101, Wednesday, March 1st. Go to St. Joseph School BCS to find out more. And we will be back on the other side, like I said, with Carl Kirkendall. Don't miss it. Come back. And we're back. Welcome to Red Sea Roundup on Red Sea Catholic Radio. Again, you might be listening to us on 
KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, or KINF 107.9 FM LP in Palestine. Possibly you're catching us on redsearadio.org or listening to us on our iPhone or Android apps. However you're joining us, we're glad that you're here, and I am really pleased to uh, welcome in our guest for this hour, Carl Kirkendall, the author of Faith and Perseverance, the History of the Catholic Church in Central Texas. If you want to be a part of the conversation as it unfolds, you can call in at 85 Love Red C 855-683-7332. I'm laughing because you're just Dennis, asking me to make fun of Dennis you. Dennis right was now. trying to to help me by turning the uh, screen with the with the timer toward me so I could see it, but then that cut off the uh, printout for the phone number. And so then I had to Ask him to turn it again. 85, love, red, sea. I just, I, I, that's my, one of my crutches, man. I don't, I just don't trust myself that I'm going to say the, the, num, the number correctly. Um, okay, so I told you that we have the author of Faith and Perseverance, the history of the Catholic Church in Central Texas, in with us, Carl Kirkendall. Good morning, Carl. You drove in from the temple area, correct, in these uh, these challenging conditions, and we really appreciate you being in the uh, the cozy studios of, of Red Sea. Good morning. Good morning. I'm very glad to be here. Awesome. Um, we are too, and I'm looking forward to, you know, unveiling this book for people, introducing this book for people, and encouraging them to go check it out. I'm going to change things up on you a little bit. Okay. Go down to the, the bottom of the, the po- talking points that I talked to you about, because maybe some of our listeners are familiar with the official history of the diocese that is out. And you mentioned it's more of a, a, a coffee table book. It's uh, pictures are, are much more prominent. Um, capsule kind of histories of the various parishes are, are very prominent in it. But you had a hand in producing that book. Talk to us about the official history and then the how that compares to your project, Faith and Perseverance. Certainly. Let's get started that way. You, you reference it as the uh, official history of the diocese, which I would assume is a, a pretty accurate statement, but the title of the book is Treasures of the Diocese of Austin. Okay. And the book was put together to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the Diocese of Austin. The book is about 400 pages, Mm -hmm. and it's basically a coffee table book. The first 60 pages or so is a macro-level history of the diocese with some historic pictures. And in the back portion of the book, which really takes up most of the the pages in the book, is a two-page spread on each parish with a parish history, current pictures, and then the same for the schools, the hospitals, the convents the priest retirement home, basically anything Catholic within the diocese. So it's a, it turned out to be a beautiful and fabulous work. Um, the diocese is very aware that I was working on my own book, Faith and Perseverance, and because of that, they contacted me and said, would I spearhead this? Um, there was a world-class photographer that took a lot of the current, that took the current photos of the different parishes, and then uh, some very talented authors from... Um, the Seattle area wrote the macro level history mm. and I oversaw the entire project and had, had help. Um, but it was kind of my baby. I'm sure that was quite an honor for you to be invited to take part in something that, that significant, a commemorative uh, edition for the diocese's 75th anniversary. 
Absolutely. I'm very pleased to have been asked. I enjoyed working on it. And uh, now that it's done, I'm very, very <laughs> proud that it's done sure. and proud sure. that it turned out to be such a gorgeous product. Yeah. Now, it was also probably very satisfying for you to be a part of it and to also write your book, Faith and Perseverance, because as your book's forward notes, uh, you're a cradle Catholic. You're from an old Texas family out of Lampasas County. Um, talk about that that background and also your personal faith journey. How did that influence you to to write your your book, your Catholic history? I've always been interested in history. Uh, I've loved genealogy, history all my life. But uh, you're correct. My family, I'm a seventh-generation Texan. Wow. My family go, goes back to uh, Austin's Colony. Right, the original 300, the, origi- right? the old 300. The old 300. You're exactly right. And my family has been Catholic for years. On my mother's side of the family, we had a chapel on the ranch. Uh, they're an old German ranch family. So, you know, Catholicism is just a part of my DNA mm-hmm. and loving history and being a long-term Catholic or long-term lifelong Texan. Uh, this was just a natural for me to do. Uh, in terms of personal faith journey, I don't know that I've had anything dramatic occur, sure, but sure. Uh, as I said, a, a very part of a long-term, very devout Catholic family. I went to Catholic schools, uh, even when I was at A&M, I went to Mass, mm-hmm. which a lot of college students at that time didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've continued to be very active with the diocese, spent twenty over 20 years on the Diocesan Finance Council and on and on and on. So it's just a part of my life. Now, do you have any religious vocations in your family's deep past? We do not. Unfortunately, we do not. Okay. Now, what was the, what was the relationship of Father... Father Lewis, Monsignor Pavlicek, to to you and to your family? Father Pavlicek has just been a long-term friend of mine. Okay. He and I have known one another since the mid-90s when he was pastor at St. Luke Catholic Church in Temple. Okay, okay, great, great. Now, you said you've always been involved or interested in history, interested in genealogy. You have your family background uh, stretching back to the original Austin's colony. Um you know, that's usually, that group is usually portrayed in kind of a standard survey of the United States history or Texas history as um, people who came to settle in the Mexican colony of Tejas y Coahuila. And one of the Mexican laws was that you had to be Catholic. And, and it's sort of the impression is that there weren't any Catholics in those original, the old 300, but apparently, but, but indeed there, there were. There probably weren't a lot. A lot lot of the settlers that came uh, had had immigrated from the southeast, Mm -hmm. southeastern United States, Mm -hmm. which is not known to be a big hotbed of Catholicism. Uh, Most were Protestants. But, um, you know, as you Louisiana, the the kind of glaring exception. That proves the rule, you might say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're correct. But... um, in the in Austin's colony, most colonists, if they had a family, could get five thousand acres of land. Correct. And you know, part of that stipulation was that to be a landowner, you had to be Catholic. Mm-hmm. 
So you've got these people that are going, well, we don't really want to be Catholic, but 5,000 acres of land. Mm -hmm. So uh, Stephen F. Austin was able to find a priest that was probably a good fit for what he needed at the time, Uh Father Miguel Muldoon. He was probably not one of the most devout priests that there ever was, but he served the purpose. And uh, there's a term that developed out of that, uh, Muldoon Catholics, basically meaning people that were sort of Catholic in name only or uh-huh. not, not particularly devout. Uh-huh. We have that uh, phenomenon again in our, in our country. We do. <laughs> Catholic in name only. Yes. Um, but that's interesting to, to just uh, philosophize a little bit. You know, here, there's another example of uh, the good Lord's providence bringing good glory, greatness out of um, maybe questionable human aspirations and, a- and actions, right? Correct. Um, because if it weren't for for Stephen F. Austin and his recruitment of Father Muldoon, uh, there wouldn't be, there likely wouldn't be a diocese of Austin that we're talking about, and there wouldn't be the the presence of the Catholic Church in Texas like we have it today. Absolutely. You know, I'm just amazed when I look back at the history. Um, You know, in 1745, what I think is really the first vestiges of Catholicism in Texas were three missions in Milam County, mm-hmm. similar to the missions in San Antonio, but three missions that the Franciscans started to minister to Native Americans. And, you know, the accounts of that are, are a little bit sketchy as to how many they administered to, but maybe several hundred. And to look at that area now, which is basically the Diocese of Austin, and we have over 700,000 Catholics. Yes. Um, And you look at all the Catholic Church has has done in terms of ministering and social services, health care and education. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned the Spanish missions and then obviously the the, um, transition from Spanish Mexico to Mexico as an independent country. Um, Is it... Is it true, is it fair to say that Texas really was frontier territory until the settlement of Austin's um, colony, that the the Mexicans had a hard time really figuring out what they wanted to do with that with that territory? Is that is that true? That's correct. That's correct. You know, they they saw what the Spanish had done and wanted to continue it. And so it very much was frontier times, but those frontier times continued long after that, yes. even, a, even after Texas was the Republic of Texas and on into statehood. Now, your, um, the book's subtitle is The History of the Catholic Church in Central Texas, but I'm curious, you know, what, in your opinion, or if you wanted to kind of capsulize it for the listeners, what's the thrust of your work? What's its main point? Well, basically, we tell the story of the Catholic Church in Central Texas. And one thing I'll mention, um, the Diocese of Austin today is 25 counties. When the diocese was constituted in 1947, it was originally 30 counties. Hmm. Some of the counties that we no longer have, one of them was Austin County, which is where San Felipe is, which was the capital of Texas, Mm -hmm. obviously. So I chose to write uh, about the original 30-county area, and that's why the book is entitled instead of the Diocese of Austin, right. the Catholic Church in Central Texas. Right, right. Um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting, um, the structure that you adopted for the for the book. 
um, about the first one third of the book takes up two centuries of Texas Catholic history. And then the last two thirds of the book is concerned with just the past 75 years. Now there's some, there's probably some obvious reasons why you decided to structure it that way. But um, talk about that decision to, to, to divvy up the, the page count in the book the way that you did and, and why. I, I, there's a good reason for it. And I think it was just probably as much coincidence as anything. Basically, I wanted to, t- again, tell the story of Catholicism in Central Texas. When I first set out to write the book and I was visiting with my editor, um, she was asking me to recall things from the past about works that I had read that I'd really liked. Mm-hmm. And I remembered a history professor that I had at Texas A&M, Dr. Vic Treat, and he was fabulous. Okay. Um, when we'd go into class, it was like story hour. He just made everything so interesting, and I wanted to do the same thing. Yeah. So I approached this from telling the story. Um, now to your point about the page count basically being more heavily weighted towards the current time, um, again, I think that's more coincidental. Records are much better. That's what I was trying to get to for our listeners. Yeah, it's the the source material. The historian is guided by the sources that he has. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't want to to get ahead of myself. I know you want to talk about primary sources and secondary (laughs) sources. But I would consider myself a primary source for a fair amount of this. Sure, sure. Sure. Yeah. So the the records that you mentioned, uh, the history of the missions, for example, it's a little bit sketchy. The the source material that we have available to tell that story is a little bit sparse. Correct. Um, so there's only so much that we can say about the first two centuries of of uh, Catholic history in Central Texas, but we have an abundance of records for once the Diocese of Austin was established. And I noticed that you you kind of tell that story through the different eras of the diocese's bishops. And I think, you know, there's nobody more, maybe more interesting to start with than the original bishop of the diocese, and that's Bishop Lewis Riker. Talk about him as a man, as a a shepherd, as an administrator. What did you learn about about Bishop Lewis Riker? What should people learn about him? Well, Bishop Riker was very interesting, very, very talented. He obviously did a lot of things. He is loosely referred to as the builder bishop. Mm-hmm. He's the one that got the Diocese of Austin going. Um, a lot of administrate, a lot of administrative work was involved in that, setting up different offices, uh, seeing that the parishes were staffed. But during his time in office, um, he was responsible for seeing, overseeing the construction of over 200 buildings, mostly churches, but some schools. That seems like an incredible amount of construction. Yes, yes. Um, and he was actually bishop, I guess, for 23 years mm-hmm. from 1947 to 1970. So, you know, it, it, you, you just do the math on that. And at any one time, there were a lot of construction projects going. Yeah, yeah. So Talk about... Um, Talk about Bishop Riker and his Lincoln. Ah, uh, that's that's pretty interesting. You know, um, and I'll I'll go a little bit beyond that. But yeah, please uh, do, please do. Bishop Riker was very shrewd. Bishop Riker was a very good business person. But as we all know, I think 
things have changed a lot through the years. And from the time when you used to have to kiss the bishop's ring and things like that, and the bishop was—I mean, we still— have great respect for our bishops, but you know it's it's a little different these days. So Bishop Riker was the epitome of of kind of the old time bishop, kind of a regal person, kind of a very that that puts it well. But during Vatican II, uh, he always drove a big black Lincoln, and you know that was at a time when cars were huge; they were like land yachts. <laughs> yes. But he actually shipped the Lincoln to. Rome. That is incredible to and, me. And uh, had, had the Lincoln in Rome during, when he was there for Vatican II. And I think one of the stories is that he actually, on one of the first days he was in Rome, he actually crashed the Lincoln through the gates of the Vatican. And I'm not surprised. I thought about that and just trying to imagine him maneuvering an enormous, you know, hunk of American Detroit steel through the the narrow streets of Vatican City, Rome. I could see how he might uh, lose control of the car and absolutely, and end up, you know, going in the direction he wasn't intending it to. So, uh, what a what a it, what a funny story to illustrate uh, the new world coming to to the old world uh, during that important event of the Second Vatican Council. Um, familiar, you know, we have a few minutes. Familiarize. Our listeners, if they don't know, with some of the some of the other bishops who came in his in his wake, who were his successors. You know, we've been fortunate that all of our bishops have been the right person for the time. Um, bishop Riker did a whole lot in terms of getting the diocese up and running. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the financial affairs were a bit questionable. Um, bishop Harris that succeeded him actually had been mentored by Bishop Riker. Okay. But the two were not close. And um, really in terms of being more transparent and getting the books balanced and things like that, uh, Bishop Harris, who was quite an introvert, uh, really kind of had to be more of a cleanup person. I see. So that was, that was sort of a difficult time, but it was a time that we needed to go through. Sure. Um, his successor was Bishop McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Bishop McCarthy was the very affable, outgoing, um, v- very, very different from from uh, Bishop Harris. Very pastoral, we might say. Very pastoral, exactly. Um, and, you know, again, he, he served a very needed purpose at the time. Uh, and, you know, Bishop, Bishop McCarthy was beloved by many people for, for all that he did. Following him, we had Bishop Amond, mm-hmm. who really helped bring us into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, Bishop Amond, too, was very engaging, very pastoral himself, but was able to capitalize on a lot of the progress that McCarthy had made and really brought us into the 21st century. Bishop, Bishop Amond is now Archbishop in New Orleans. Right. And our current bishop, Bishop Joe Vasquez, has continued, and he, too, is the right person for the job. Um, being bilingual, uh, he is, he reaches out to everybody and, yes. uh, he, he's the right, right person for the time. And, and he's made great progress with us. Yeah. You mentioned Bishop Vasquez's, um, Hispanic background that he's bilingual. I think that's a great segue into talking about the amazing, I shouldn't say amazing, um, the remarkable um, 
ethnic diversity of the Diocese of Austin. Yes. Um, somebody who's, for me, from an outsider might think of, oh, it's a Texas diocese. Okay, so it's going to be it's going to be Anglos and it's going to be a lot of Tejanos and Mexican immigrants. And that's true, but there's a lot more under the surface too in the, in the nooks and crannies. Right. Exactly. Uh, Brother Richard Daly at St. Ed's is a good friend of mine. And Brother Richard Daly is a historian himself and has been in the, he's not, not a native Texan, Mm -hmm. but has been in the diocese of Austin, a big part of his life. So he has a pretty good overview of, of Catholicism throughout the United States. He's Mm -hmm. spent some time in California. He's originally from the Chicago area. But Brother Richard Daly would tell you there is no history like we have in the Diocese of Austin. And I think a lot of that gets back to the diversity you you reference. During the uh, mid-1800s, in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, and maybe even 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. there was a lot of European immigration. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a big concentration of Germans, Czechs, Poles. The Italians in the Brazos Valley came in right. the 1870s or so. Um, then in the early 20th century, the Cristero Wars in uh, Mexico right. created a lot of immigration from Mexico. and That's part of the fallout of the Mexican Revolution, just for people that aren't aware. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, today, I mean, you look at how many people are of German, Czech, Polish heritage, and we have a very diverse group. Uh, Today, as you point out, I think those of Hispanic origin probably constitute 60 to 65 percent of the Catholics in the diocese. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that other 30, 35 percent is very well represented by Europeans. And in recent years, um, Asians, uh, there's some significant Asian communities. Exactly. And then the African-American community goes way back. Yeah. Um, and the African-American community is growing, uh, goes way back. So you put all that together, and we've got a beautifully diverse diocese. Talk about the, a little, just real briefly, the, the history of the black Catholic community in, at Washington on the Brazos. The black Catholic community at Washington on the Brazos is probably one of the oldest congregations in the diocese. It's one of the oldest black congregations in the United States. But it goes back to a time when the landholders there had slaves and a lot of the black black people were were, um, Christianized. They were the the slave owners, the plantation owners saw that the um, saw that their slaves were indoctrinated into the Catholic Church, and a lot of them really took that faith yeah. and stayed with it. Yeah. Uh, eventually, the family that owned a lot of that land and had and owned a lot of those slaves left, and they left that land to the, what had been their slaves. And a lot of those descendants of those people are still there today. Yeah. In fact, at the uh, Catholic community at Washington on the Brazos, there is a deacon, Deacon Swede, that is a descendant of that family. Yes, and Deacon Swede is actually on our airwaves. We have a um, uh, station ID that he re- we recorded with him years ago, and so every once in a while you'll hear Deacon Limus 
say our call letters and and welcome people to listen to Red right. Sea Catholic Radio. So it's that's a really fabulous. Neat really neat connection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we have about less than twenty minutes left. Um, yeah, talk about. I wanted to ask you. I wanted you to talk about the the sources you use, the primary, the secondary. What were some things that you know were really valuable to you in creating this narrative? Also, would love to hear from you about. Was there a source that you didn't ex, you know you didn't expect that it even existed, and and then it was incredibly helpful to you? I think you mentioned in our personal correspondence also um, how invaluable. Um, electronic sources and the availability of uh, digitized resources were to you? Talk about that. Absolutely. I was surprised that, um, you know, if you dug hard enough, the sources were out there. Sometimes they were a little hard to find. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in terms of primary sources... I mean, um, that's half the fun, right, is the digging. I enjoyed that. (laughs) I enjoyed the whole process, but probably my favorite part was the digging and doing the research. The... um, Let's, let's talk about primary sources. Um, in the archives in Austin, and we have two sets of archives in Austin. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, the Diocese of Austin has their own archives, and then in the same building in the Pastoral Center just across the hall are the Catholic Archives of Texas, which have archival records from all over, from all of the 15 dioceses within, oh. within, the, within the state of Texas. But Good to know. There was a lot of correspondence. Uh, I came across interviews that were done by Bishop McCarthy. I came across personal correspondence that was done by different bishops and different different priests within the diocese. Um, there was a uh, there was an interview that I read that was done by George Brown, who was an attorney that represented Bishop Harris. Okay, so there were some fabulous sources. And then I was also fortunate enough to enter, have some really good personal interviews with some of our retired priests, Father John Malinowski, yes, uh, Father Benedict Zintek, uh, Father Louis Pavlicek that we talked earlier. But uh, in terms of secondary sources, there are some things that I was not aware of. There is just a fabulous work that is not widely known. It's known pretty well in the historical community, but it's very hard to access. And it's called Our Catholic Heritage in Texas. And it is a seven-volume work by uh, Carlos Castaneda, who was a pretty well-renowned uh, historian at the University of Texas. Mm-hmm. In fact, the library the, has the library is named, is named for him. him. Yep. Yes. But he did a fabulous job uh, of creating a seven-volume work that spanned from oh, the early 1700s to about 1900. So that was an invaluable resource for me. And then one other thing that was really interesting, um, Father James Talmadge Moore, who is is now deceased, but he was a Catholic priest. Prior to becoming a Catholic priest, he had been an Episcopal priest. And at one time in the 70s, he was actually here at the Episcopal Church in College Station but he was quite a historian, and I think has a Ph.D. in history from Texas A&M. And he wrote two books. Um, one is Fire and Flood, and the other one is Acts of Faith. And those two are available. And they pick up about 18—they cover about a 100-year period from roughly 1850 to 1950. And then one other source that I 
I, I thought was really interesting. Uh, it was an unpublished work called Lone Star Catholicism mm. by Father James Vanderholt. Father James Vanderholt was actually part of the Diocese of Houston and later part of the Diocese of Beaumont. But he was an amateur historian. And it was really interesting. When I started this work, I made an outline of what I wanted the book to look like. And I was just scratching the surface, just barely getting started. And uh, the archivist sent me a copy of Lone Star Catholicism. And I was just blown away that the outline that I had written very closely mirrored what was done. Mm. And I knew I was on the right track. Yeah. What would we do without those kind archivists? Yes. The archivists that I worked with were fabulous. I worked with a number of them, but I worked most frequently with uh, Olivia Herschel at the Diocese of Austin Archives and then Selena Aleman at the Catholic Archives of Texas. And they were fabulous. They suggested things mm-hmm. to me without me having to ask. Yes. Very welcoming. And um, I feel good that in the process, I made two good friends. We couldn't do our work as historians without the help of archivists. So we send our prayers and our blessings to any archivists out there that are that are listening for sure. Yes. And I want to compliment you, Carl, on your, your works cited uh, section of your book, folks. 33-page long, works cited, um, single-spaced, 11-point font. Um, you really did. You really did your spade work, and, we it, did. and it shows. We did. Thank you. Um, and the fact that you also did you index the book yourself? This book, folks, actually has an index, which is becoming more and more rare these days. You know, I was not satisfied until we had an index. It's frustrating. It's to so me valuable to, to pick up a book that does not have one. Um, But I will credit my sister-in-law for some of these things. My sister-in-law is Karen Kirkendall. Mm. And Karen wrote probably four of the 16 chapters. I would give her an outline, and I would say, please go research these items. So she did a lot of the research, and she did a big part of the the index. Uh, But, you know, this was a labor of love. And I wanted it to be a quality product. And I, again, I don't think you have a quality product, at least in terms of history, unless you've got a good index to, to accompany it. Well, if you don't have an index, you can't use the book as a, another historian can't really use that book as, as a tool as well. Right. Without, without that index. Uh, so it's, it's really important piece of the, uh, the, the, the book itself. Um, so Karen was so so helpful. She's she, her name made it onto the cover. She with was with you. Yes. Uh, so thank you, Karen, for helping make Faith and Perseverance possible. We're talking with Carl Kirkendall, author of Faith and Perseverance: History of the Catholic Church in Central Texas. We've got a little more than ten minutes left. Where can people get a hold of this book? The book is available on Amazon. Um, also. Catholic Arts and Gifts in Austin, which is on Burnett Road, carries the book. Okay. And I have just started the marketing process. Hopefully there will be other retailers that carry it. But today, succinctly, Amazon or Catholic Art and Gifts in Austin. Okay, great. Well, we'll put you in touch with a couple of friends, some friends of ours that we know in um, the Waco area that have a, a Catholic bookstore, Catholic uh, religious goods store, ask you to give them a call. I would love to. Um, <clears throat> okay. So 
now is your chance to talk to us about some of the stories or some of the highlights of the book that concern themselves specifically with the Waco Lorena area or the Bryan College Station area. Those are where we have our two radio stations in the Diocese of Austin. What are some things, um, some takeaways from the book for people in those listening areas? Well, that that's a good question, and I'm glad you asked about that. Um, let's take Brian first. Um, really, the mother church in Brian would be St. Joseph's, okay. and I think St. Joseph's Parish was put together in beginning in 1873, and you know at that time Brian was a railroad town. Um, I think the influx of Italian immigrants probably helped get Catholicism started, and then um, and they were coming to farm in the the Brazos the Bottom Bra- in the Brazos Bottom, yes. Mm-hmm. And actually, they came uh, as laborers initially. And very smart people, and eventually ended up owning some of those farms. <laughs> so, um, but um, the um, early on, as I said, St. Joseph's was the mother church in Bryan, but uh, there was a small congregation for African Americans at Allen Farm, north of Bryan, and it was called St. Benedict's. Okay. That place no longer exists. Also, speaking of African-Americans, there was a, um, it's unclear to me if it was actually a parish or a mission, and it may have been both, but it was Immaculate Conception in Bryan, and that was primarily for African-Americans. It was a spinoff from St. Joseph's, and then in the 1960s, uh, the congregants went back to St. Joseph's, but... um, St. Joseph Hospital had, was formed in 1939. They had a, a, a part of it. And then one thing that's very interesting to me is Villa Maria Academy was here, and that was run by the Ursulines. And oh, okay. it's really interesting that uh, in the Galveston hurricane of 1900, the Ursuline school in Galveston suffered a lot of damage, and the Ursuline nuns said, we need to go inland. We need to get away from this stuff. So Villa Maria Academy was was established and was in existence for 20 or 25 years, from the early 1900s to about 1930. So when you look at those things and you look at the growth of the area, Catholicism is pretty well rooted in Brazos County. Uh, but originally, not so much. It was, it was slow to develop. Uh, we talked about Muldoon Catholics earlier. Mm-hmm. A big part of Brazos County was in... Austin's colony. You probably had a few Muldoon Catholics, but it took several institutions to really get Catholicism going since we didn't have a big influx of European people that were that were Catholics other than the Italians. Mm-hmm. And then at Waco is a little different story. Um, the mother church in Waco would be St. Mary's in Waco, which is was, I think, formed in 1870. And at that time, Waco was a small town, and it was a rough-and-tumble town. Hmm. Um, There were some Hispanic laborers, long forms in the Brazos area up there that uh, probably were some of the first Catholics. And again, a scattering of Catholics. But um, one thing that really helped Catholicism develop in the Waco area was Providence Hospital. The The Daughters of Charity started Providence Hospital in 1904. 
people in primarily Protestant Waco at the time were pretty reluctant and didn't quite know what to think about the nuns. But it took a while and they caught on. Mm. But um, also the Basilians had a college in Waco for a few years in the early 1900s. It was called St. Basil's. Really? Yes. And then there was a Catholic boarding, girls' boarding school in Waco, Sacred Heart, that was in existence for probably 40 years or so, from, say, 1910 to maybe as late as 1950. So just like we had in the, in the Bryan area, some of the institutions that, that came in, whether they be schools or hospitals, really helped build Catholicism in the area. Um, zoom back to Bryan College Station. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to, t- we have about five minutes, to tell the story in thumbnail form of how St. Joseph's was truly the mother church for the Catholic Center that's here at St. Mary's at Texas A&M University. Yes. Um, you know, as I, as I mentioned uh, I think 1873, St. Joseph started, and it wasn't uncommon to have a mother church in an area. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, in Austin's, the cathedral, what is now the cathedral, was kind of the mother church. But I think it was Father Gleisner who mm-hmm. was a uh, pastor at um, at St. Joseph's in Bryan. Couldn't help but miss the A&M College of Texas down the street, basically, and saw it growing. And I think he was very instrumental in uh, helping getting helping get St. Mary's and College Station started. And then Father Tim Valenta that that followed him was also a lot of help. Yes. So that's a a great example of of the one Catholic parish helping the the Catholics in need at at another spot until, you know, they have have, uh, parish facilities and such for themselves. Um, As we start to put a wrap on things here. Again, I'm talking with Carl Kirkendall, author of Faith and Perseverance. It's a wonderful uh, narrative history of the Catholic Church in Central Texas, especially uh, focusing on the post-war period, post-World War II period, and the actual formation of the Diocese of Austin. Um, Do you think think that in some ways um, the Diocese of Austin is—is it a— is it a, a local example of the shifts and trends um, of the implementation of Vatican II? I mean, it, it was founded in 1947, and then, you know, less than 20 years later, you get the Second Vatican Council closing in 1965. You know, most of the history of the diocese is in the post-Vatican II era. Is it fair to say that it's kind of a, a microcosm of the implementation of, of Vatican II in the United States in some ways? I think in some ways I would I would definitely agree with that. You know, the diocese just celebrated their 75th anniversary. 58 of those years have been post-Vatican II, mm-hmm. and we've seen the changes that have come through Vatican II. Uh, the Diocese of Austin has experienced that just like every other diocese in the United States has. Uh, fortunately, we've handled it very well, and we've come through it in good shape. But... Uh, Vatican II has very definitely influenced the church in Central Texas. I'm putting you on the spot here. Do you see any challenges that are on the horizon for the diocese that we can um, approach with maybe wisdom or perspective based on our history? That's a very broad-based question, I realize. Uh, and I recognize that, but that's, I'm fine with that. Um, 
I think youth, uh, youth and vocations, and yeah. those two kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, you know, when you talk to Bishop Vasquez, I think he will tell you one of the same things, that, that vocations and ministering to youth, to young people, is a is an opportunity for us. Uh, I think it's something that, that we need to find a way to do better, honestly. Yeah, and making sure that that ministering to youth helps to open their mind and their hearts to to religious vocation, right? Correct. That they'll consider that. And the strength of the family is so important in producing religious vocations. Family today is is challenged, as it certainly has its challenges. Uh, Vocations are very interesting. They have changed through the years, and always you're going to have a family influence, probably not as much as you did in times past. But um, the family influence is very important. And as we see challenges to the family units today, uh, that's something that, that we need to be very mindful of. Indeed. And, and Carl, thank you for giving us your time today. And I just want to say uh, thank you to our listeners for supporting the Red Sea Catholic Apostolate. That's what our, that's in our name, Religious Education for the Domestic Church. We exist to strengthen the family unit, to strengthen the domestic church, and to support mothers and fathers who are the primary educators of our children in our faith and the ones who pass on the faith and, and make, uh, create an environment where a religious vocation is, a, is an option. So thank you to our listeners, and thank you to our guest, Carl Kirkendall. Go and pick up Faith and Perseverance on Amazon, and thank you for listening to Red Sea Roundup. And when considering the values of heaven and the values of earth, always round up. up